Welcome to the first episode of the SRE Path Podcast for 2024. I'm your host, Ash Patel, and joining me on this expedition is the one and only Sebastian Vietz, a true SRE maverick. Our mission, to unravel the enigma that is site reliability engineering. Consider us your trusty SRE guides, taking you through the intricate landscape towards a promised land of improved uptime, scalability, and peak performance. Picture it as a journey where we unfold the map to SRE success, revealing hidden gems like that off-the-beaten-path pizzeria, serving the finest slices of Kubernetes pie, observability sandwich, and developer's delight. In today's episode, we'll take a stroll down memory lane, reflecting on the quirks of the past year, and set our sights on the exciting prospects that lie ahead in this fresh new year. So buckle up for another season of SRE Path Podcast, where the path is unpredictable, the insights are invaluable, and the journey is always peppered with a healthy dose of tech talk. Let's dive in. Hey, look, guess who I've got on? It's Sebastian. Great to have you back on. Finally, took me forever to come back on. You've been a busy, busy boy. Yeah, had a few things on the go this year for sure. That's why I'm now officially on vacation and I only want to do things where I can put my feet up or sit down and maybe talk a little bit into a, a microphone, enjoy my new office at home. So... Yeah, I'm happy. I could tell you right now, it looks really nice. That mood lighting, ooh, chef's kiss <laughs> right there. <laughs> Don't get too excited there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come visit. I'll, I'll come come say hi. We'll turn it into our little uh, SRE man sure. cave. Yes, yes. Wait until the window's over, though. You don't need to come here when it's... Could be cozy, yeah. but I'd rather we barbecue outside and enjoy a little bit of the sunlight and uh, record a little bit in uh, my new office slash studio. But yeah, it's it's nicer when it's like spring and summer. You know it. Oh, I know it. I know what a big difference there is between winter and spring in Toronto. Yep. Especially summer. Ooh, love summers there. You uh, just wanted to say something. I think there was something on your on your mind. No, we were just chatting before, like casually, and then we had to record this because we were like, whoa, okay, we need to talk about this. And it is yeah. it is something that is just sitting on the top of our mind and has probably been since the beginning of the year, and that's the space still really is going through tough times. You know, people are losing their jobs. People are saying, I'm just doing incident response. I'm going, why? You're probably seeing the same thing. You're hearing the same things, right? Unfortunately, I do. Yeah, it's it feels a bit it feels a bit like a failure of our community or of our industry, where people are continued to misinterpret what an SRE does or what an SRE should do, or better to say it, what they could do. There's so much more potential. There's so much more out there, and just to limit it to that particular discipline, I think. We just said it earlier, right? If you were to call that professional incident responder, that would just be more honest if we would call it that, as opposed to like labeling that person uh, whose full-time job basically is to react to incidents or work 
through incidents, right? The whole life cycle. If you were to just call them incident responder or incident analyst or whatever, then calling them an SRE, because for me, there's just a little bit more to that. See, that's the thing, right? I think this is very difficult for companies to get around this whole idea that you can have a role that's all encompassing. And that's something that people keep arguing about. They're like, how can this particular role be able to do so many things? Handle release engineering, support observability, well, name a few other things for me, Sebastian. I'm running blanks right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking about capacity management, incident response or incident management is part of it, right? But there, there's more. Like People like love to talk about uh, the opportunities that lie within chaos engineering when you are already a little bit more of a mature organization, right? There's, there's opportunities there. There is anything that falls into the realm of release engineering, right? Like I said, some of my team members right now, they do a lot of code refactoring, for example, because in my view, SREs go where the pain points are, right? Where the unreliability lies. And if that's in the code itself, in the product code, in the platform code, in the network code, wherever it might lie, that's where you go, right? That's where you try to figure it out. And that's where you try to make it better and improve the reliability of your overall system. So there's so much, but if you pigeonhole it, right? And say SREs or, you know, DevOps engineers, there are to do that one specific thing and that one specific thing only. One could argue, are you using them to their full potential? Are you understanding the discipline well enough or are you just really in need of a group of people or uh, some individuals that are hyper-focused on a particular aspect of your, of your business, of your technology, right? Right. But then I would argue again, like we said earlier, name that role appropriately, like call it what it is. It's not reliability engineering per se. And because there, there, there's more to it. It's, it's not that specialist. I think we even had an episode around it, you and I, where we were talking about SREs being generalists. They go where the problems are. They go where the challenges are. Again, they go where the unreliability may be. And then they're investigate and then they're work that area. And then they're trying to improve that. And if as part of that work, it turns out you need to invest more into that area, then you potentially create a team around that specific body of work, that particular area, and that team stays put. It focuses on that area continuously. But then again, I would probably name that group something different that is more specific to what they're actually doing. Right? It's something more specialized in a specific area. But that's where I would sort of draw a loose line between a group of specialists focusing on that particular body of work, focusing on that area versus an SRE that then pulls out of that area again and goes after the next problem space, the next opportunity, the next area where unreliability persists. Are you still with me? <laughs> So in a way, what you're saying is 
you got to hire someone who's like your internal software consultant. That's a paradigm shift. That is a mindset shift and a half. Oof. How do you make it happen? Could be that, or the other way to look at it is you just have professional problem solvers. Again, they look for problems or problems find them and they go after these, right? Trying to resolve them. That's what they do. That's what their day-to-day looks like. And no matter the underlying discipline, no matter the problem space, no matter where that problem may end up leading them, you might realize as part of their work that there is more substantial work to be done on a potentially continuous basis in order for your business to be able to operate reliably at scale. If scale is what you're after, you want to explore other opportunities in that particular space, you go and do that, right? But your professional problem solver will pull themselves out at that point because the initial problem has been solved. There's more to it, right? There's more opportunity. There's more challenges potentially. The initial sort of urgent thing that needed to be resolved in order to get you back to business, back to stable, back to reliable, that hopefully was resolved. And so now you take that generalist, that problem solver, and like sent them towards the next problem that needs solving. In a way that could help reduce costs. Think about it in terms of like, if you set up a DevOps team without actually knowing what level of what extent of problem you're having with DevOps in your software engineering. You build up this team, a specialist team of people who handle DevOps, who handle release engineering, not knowing if you really need, if you even have that amount of work for everybody to be doing. Instead, get troubleshooters to go around the software system and fix things. And if they find it is a recurring problem, like the developers are not able to get the DevOps piece right, then you build a specialist team, like say a DevOps team or even an observability team or a performance management team. That requires management to actually be able to know where the next place has got to be. They're always got to be staying on top of all those things. Not easy. Because a lot of times management itself is working to react to problems. So you got to be thinking about what you need to be doing in the next two to three year time scope. But I think when, I mean, I'm, a, I'm in a management position myself, right? So for me, it's a matter of letting my folks do what they do best. And the reason is not to be hands off or not interested in what they're doing. It's partially so that I can look outwards, that I can look for those next opportunities for those next problem areas that we could be tackling once the current ones are resolved, right? Right. And that for me has a lot to do with relationship building, talking with a lot of different people in a lot of different places inside of engineering and outside of engineering in different like business groups, right? Right. Where they share their experience with me on how we run the business, how we do business, you know, how we market, what we sell, how we selling it. There's a lot of opportunity in those conversations and you will find that when you have those conversations as a 
engineering leader in general, but also as a reliability engineering leader, you will get to hear about people's problems and what is challenging them, right? What holds them back? Okay. I'm not saying every conversation leads to an initiative for your reliability engineering teams, but out of 10 conversations that I have, I would argue one of them certainly could qualify for my team to, you know, look into next, you know, do a spike, do some research, do some investigation, figure out how we can do this better and differently, how we can support the cause of the business for that particular team or group that I have been talking to, I don't know, a month ago, three months ago, six months ago. Keep building on this, Sebastian. I want to see where you go with it. Do you know, my approach is I continuously evaluate um, my team's focus areas, right? And those focus areas will shift. That's sort of the first mindset to bring to the table. They're not, they're not stable. They're not always the same. I'm operating within a set of potential areas of focus that we could get ourselves into, right? So there are some boundaries, how far and how wide I would go with my team. But those boundaries are pretty far apart. So there's lots of opportunity within those boundaries to maneuver and operate and have different types of engagements uh, within your organization to solve problems for that organization, for your business, you know, within your products, within your technology teams or outside of them. It's just a matter of, you know, the teams working the problems as they are right now. And then some time that I spend, some of my uh, more experienced engineers, right, reliability engineers, they come with me onto some of those discovery uh, journeys and discovery conversations where we figure out, could that be a potential, potential problem space the time when we're done with what we're currently doing, right? And that's sort of how we continuously sort of bring things into our work backlog, if you will. And when the time comes, there will always be something that we can elevate to our highest priority. And now that becomes our focus area for a little while. I think you need to teach other directors of SRE how to do this. If you make it sound easy. Um, I, sure, it might sound that way. I mean, it's, it's years in the making. And I feel like I found for myself and for my teams an approach that could work, that scales, that is potentially also something that could be taught to others, right? Because I have enough stories that I can share and talk about where that approach does work and can be successful if, and that's a big if, the organization allows for it. Hey, it seems like you're enjoying this episode. You've already listened to 15 minutes. Can you do us a favor and share it with your friends and colleagues? It really helps us get the good word out on SRE. If I'm constrained with my team within my mandate, that I cannot go out and have these kinds of conversations with other leaders in the in the company and those organizations exist I work for some of them myself right when there are constraints as to the type of conversations that I can have then I won't go fair, very far the discipline won't go very far I will have fewer choices 
less to select from as to what my team can work on next. And that's where you get pigeonholed, right? That's where you end up working a specific discipline because the boundaries set for your team, for the mandate that your team is supposed to fulfill are so narrow that you know you end up just with incidents response, for example, or you end up just with uh, release engineering. But then again, I would argue then A, you don't need me there. I would argue you don't need reliability engineers there. You could just create an incident response team, or you could just create and have a release engineering team, and you could be good with that. That might fit the organizational structure and culture very well, and that could work for them. But then you're not you're not ready for the reliability engineering discipline. I'd liken the need for SREs to this kind of approach where, okay, you have security teams in software organizations. They're very important. Cybersecurity is becoming more and more important. AppSec people are there trying to look into what's happening with the application. Where's the security breach coming in from? But they don't have the breadth of system knowledge to know what's going on in the full system. You cannot expect someone who is working in a very specialized security role to understand what is going on in the entire system. And that's the whole idea of having SREs who over time build experience in that. So then they can support the AppSec people in responding faster to security incidents and helping them bring DevSecOps across the organization because there's already not enough people in cybersecurity and AppSec as we know they're already stretched and that's a critical area SREs can help with that no I agree I mean they need champions just like SREs need champions right you can't just have SREs everywhere you, just like you cannot have cybersecurity specialists everywhere it's just not a sustainable model right it's just too expensive you might not even have enough talent in the marketplace in order to deploy that kind of model so don't even bother trying what you're looking for are advocates and champions in all places where you need them to be right so you need to cultivate them you need to train those folks potentially invest some time and money and education into those champions and advocates so you will have them at the ready when you need them because like you said those are then the people that have enough context for you know the security incident at hand in order to enable your function your security function or your SRE function because if you're just isolated on an island trying to go into an ecosystem that you're super unfamiliar with your response is going to take forever at best going back to my current team application security anyway and platform security is one of my team's responsibilities, right? So we are the first point of contact for the actual cybersecurity team in my organization. So if there are anything that smells off, that seems wrong, they're coming to, to my team who has sufficient enough ecosystem experience and insight for us to say things like, that's a false positive. Don't worry about it. It's, it's nothing critical, right? Or, hmm, you might be onto something. Where we need to look is here, here, and here in order to validate some of our assumption and 
figuring out if this incident is legitimate or not. And if it is, that's the team that you can work with to potentially address the situation. Or we at least have the connections to the other applications or product engineering teams to bring those then in, give them the lay of the land quickly, and then say, together, we need to figure something out here. And, you know, the security teams basically are a fly on the wall. They're just observing. They're 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 watching. They're taking some of the information that they're listening to and then they're hearing and they're uh, they're gathering. They take that away, you know, for communication and awareness across the organization. So you really are showing them the lay of lay of the land, and then they're figuring out how they can apply their specialist skills. Yeah, I mean, true. And even if it comes to, you know, special expertise required in order to mitigate well, in order to resolve well, you know, you might go back to those security, uh, cybersecurity specialists. You show them what you have, what's currently applied, and they might give you tips and hints and resolutions and solutions that you can implement potentially once they know where the issue comes from, where the root cause lies, they might be a valuable contributor because they have the expertise on, you know, how to securely code in a specific way, how to choose the right protocol, how to, you know, secure your ecosystem in a in in in, in a better fashion, you know, how to wrap some layers of security around what you're doing in order to protect what's happening within that within that bubble better. They have those skills, but they need to know where to apply them, right? And that's usually the hardest thing. Find the spot where the security principles need to be applied. And you can't, in a, especially in a large size organization, you can't do it without champions and advocates with the people on the ground that know these systems, that know these applications, that know these infrastructures and platforms inside and outside, right? Ultimately, whatever it comes down to, you're following the patterns that you're following and we need to spread better practices, not best practices, because nothing's a best practice, better practices across to other people because SREs are dealing with too much burnout. We'd love it if you can give the podcast a rating. Five stars only. Just kidding. But a five-star rating makes a huge difference to how people perceive a podcast and it keeps us motivated to produce more episodes. If you have any other feedback, feel free to email ash at srepath.com. Every other conversation I have has something to do with, this is too much for me. And it really shouldn't be too much. So we'll try and focus on talking about those kind of things in 2024 and still hammering in the idea of give SREs actual SRE work rather than just turning them into a specialist incident responder team. Yeah, 100%. And there are lots of good thoughts around like like preventing burnout. Like, I think there are a lot of smart people that have talked about this for years and even decades, and I'm not quite sure why some of those already learned lessons are not being applied more frequently because some of them are straight forward and very simple to do, you know, like simplest of them all, don't focus on 50 things all at once. Guess what? It's not going to go well. You know, I feel like this is a common sense conclusion that 
everybody should come to if you're having your eyes wide open and you look at your space and your company and your team properly. You know, the other way to prevent burnout is by empowering your people to manage up and manage back to you. Again, recently happened with my team, put a little bit too much on their plate and they felt comfortable enough to say back to me, Sebastian, you know, we need to rein it back in. And so great. Like, I'm glad you caught me, you know, I'm glad we're, we're having this conversation so we can do exactly that. You know, like we ended up with five things on our plate. Fortunately, we didn't start five things, but we still talked about five things and we could have ended up starting on five things, but we ended up narrowing it back down, you know, so that you end up working on one or two, at most three things across a team, you know, like those focus areas that I keep talking about and not five, because guess what happens? You burn out people when you work on five. That's one consequence of that. And none of these five things get done particularly well, not just because they're burned out, but because they're also constantly context switching and focus shifting, right? So the the outcomes that you accomplish there, they're going to be suboptimal, you know? They're still going to try hard and do their best, but their best would look very different if they're focused on one or two things. You know, it's just, again, common sense, plain and simple logic. And if you spend enough time worrying about those things or being aware of them or constantly sort of making sure you pay attention to those things, then those are easy conversations to have. Look, this is an afternoon conversation that you can say, oh yeah, oops, we ended up taking on a little bit too much here this week. Uh, need to scale it back again so that we can all stay sane and focused. But again, this sounds easy. This should be easy, but it also takes practice. But then that's the whole thing, Maybe. right? The yeah, it really does take practice and then building in, but it also takes psychological safety. We keep talking about it. Whether we're actually achieving true psychological safety is another story. Like I was, we were talking just before, right, about vacation periods and how you were saying a lot of staff don't take the full vacation time off. Yep. And to me, I've heard people actually say, if I took that time off, that would mean I'd be on the firing line the next time there's a layoff. That's not psychological safety right there. So we have to take that parallel and apply it to, well, if people are not feeling like they can just come up to you. And I just spoke with someone who's in Toronto, Shlomo Bielek, and he said, I actually hire people who will actually tell me I am wrong. Now, how different is that from how people would consider hiring? It's usually the case of tell me I'm right. <laughs> Oh, but I like I like both the things. I like Shlomo and his ideas around engineering leadership, and I like that idea a lot. Where you know, literally, like, if you want to boil it down, you want to be the dumbest person in the room, and everybody else around you is a tad smarter in a different area. Ideally, you know, and if you're coming up with crazy ideas, they call you out. You know, if you're putting too much on their plate, they're going to call you out always in the right way, professionally and respectfully, yada, yada, yada. But they do. And that's the kind of conversation and situation as a leader that you're not shying away from. 
you are encouraging it when it happens. Even if it just happens in the smallest of moments, you need to be able to pick on, up on those moments when people try and people come out of their shell and they're pushing the envelope a little bit, the organizational envelope and figuring out how much of a leader you are and how much you can take in terms of criticism. And if you're feeling like this is coming across, like cherish that, value that, take that and blow that up, you know, amplify that so that everybody else on the team knows this is happening and it's okay. This is supposed to happen. This is how it's supposed to work. This is how we're going to be great together if you are doing that and we're keeping each other in check. I love this a lot. And as much as I can, I want to do those things, right? I want to do those things for my teams, create that kind of environment where they feel like they, you know, in a one-on-one, they call it out or they call it out in front of the team and it's still going to be okay. And then we'll talk about it and we'll figure out a path forward together. Okay. So let's just wrap things up and set what we're going to aim to do in 2024 with advocating better SRE practices and happier reliability engineers. What are your thoughts on that, Sebastian? No, I'm down for it. That's, that sounds right. Like we still have a long way to go. Like we might be getting a bit complacent and a bit more too comfortable with the things that we already said, the talks that we already had, the articles that we already wrote, you know, and sometimes we like to pretend that everyone is already educated, which couldn't be farther from the truth. Right. Um, and I want to say it here out the first time, something controversial that I said to you earlier, that that echo chamber that we're all in, including us too, right? We are saying things yeah. to people that are already very receptive to the ideas that we have, potentially even applying them and have years of experience in experience uh, using them. But that's not necessarily the audience that we're trying to reach. We're trying to reach those folks that are not there yet. And I would argue in terms of the overall engineering community, software, platform, um, you know, just general technology domain, you know, there are still so many more people, individual contributors and leaders to reach that haven't heard of any of those things that we are talking about every single day, right? Which is a scary thought if you think of it, you know? It's also a great opportunity, right? And we'll tap into that opportunity in 2024 together. But we still have lots of work left to do if we really want to spread the good word on what SRE is and what can it do to your people, to your teams, and for your organizations and their businesses. To sum it up, we are yet to cross the chasm and we're still working on it. We're building that boat. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm in for it. I mean, so let's focus on that in 24. I just realized that's if boats could actually cross a chasm. I was going to say, isn't that a bridge, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. An airboat. How about that? An airboat to cross the chasm. Mm, you know, one of those um, airships, you know, one of those ones. I exactly. We'll work on those again. You know? Should be interesting yeah. to see some of those in the air. 
Yep, that's exactly it. So we're gonna build an airship to help cross the chasm to get everyone else into our little echo chamber that's called doing SRE right. And making that echo chamber a bit bigger, you know? Bigger every year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you have a topic in mind that we should explore this year? Let us know by emailing ash at srepath.com or by sending me a DM on LinkedIn.